Thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth that you've given to us. I pray that we would be discerning, that we would also discern our own hearts to know the truth of our relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. So if you have your phone off, could you, on rather, could you turn it off, please? So the teacher asked the class to use the word fascinate in a sentence. And so Molly raised her hand and said, well, I went to a farm and I got, it was fascinating to see the cute little sheep. Teacher said, well, that's a good sentence, but I'm looking for the word fascinate, not fascinating. Then Sally raised her hand. My family went to see Rock City and I was fascinated. Well, that's a good sentence too, said the teacher, but I'm looking for the word fascinate to be used in a proper sentence. Then Johnny raised his hand. The teacher hesitated because she'd been burned by little Johnny before. <clears throat> she finally decided there was no way he could damage the word fascinate. So she called on him. Johnny said, my Aunt Gina has a sweater with 10 buttons, but her boobs are so big she can only fasten eight. gotta love it I say something funny just because life is so serious (laughs) and so trying these days so it's good just to laugh if possible about anything so well as we come to chapter four we see now that John addresses the importance of testing the spirits to discern truth from error he's very concerned for his flock as they had been impacted by the Gnostic false teachers So today, the influence and impact of false teaching is stunning. They're often embraced by the majority of Christendom who has been deceived. And the gospel message is so distorted that people don't even understand that they are in a sinful state, separated from a holy God, and need forgiveness desperately. Much of the teaching out there states that Jesus died in order to make you happy to make your marriage good, to make you wealthy, and to make you a healthy person. One such false teacher has a $20 million jet, his own airstrip and mansion. He is worth $700 million. This money has been sent to him by people deceived by his message. Their error is seen in the view of Jesus, how they view Jesus himself and his deity and his humanity. One of these famous teachers this wealthy one in particular, this is, I'm quoting directly him. Adam was the copy, looked just like God. If you stood Adam upside God, they look exactly alike. If you stood Jesus and Adam side by side, they would look and sound exactly alike. He goes on to say, you have exactly the same DNA as Jesus. You are a twin to the master himself. Your spiritual DNA was programmed to keep your body strong for 120 years. Adam is as much like God as you can get. He was not a little like God. He was not almost like God. He was not subordinate to God even. Just the same as Jesus when he came to earth. He, was not, he wasn't a, a lot like God. He wasn't a lot like God. Yeah, that's what he said. Adam and the Garden of Eden was God manifested in the flesh. So he goes on to state then that whatever comes out of your mouth determines what will come to pass in your life. He says this is the absolute truth. This kind of false teaching is so prevalent and it is so dangerous. It makes people out to be gods on the same level as Jesus. Just because there may be a sprinkle of truth mixed in with what they're saying, this such heresy does not make this teaching uh, acceptable 
or the ministry, though thousands follow. Why would believers be so duped into thinking, you know, years ago, eight reasons why Jesus is going to return in 88, or 88 reasons why he's, I, I don't know. And people buy the books, they believe it. Books like The Shack, Christians love that, and it's heresy on the Trinity. It's full of errors about the gospel. How do believers listen to popular teachers who speak nothing about sin, nothing about the need to repent of your sin, nothing about obedience to God's word and dying to your flesh? Rather, they just want you to live a happy, good life. Tell that to all the thousands of people recorded in Fox's Book of Martyrs. Instead of dying for the Lord that they loved and being tortured, they're supposed to be living in the lap of luxury with no pain, no suffering, no sickness, even as an ungodly government sought their death. That's the kind of teaching that is out there today in mass. Important truths, though, about discerning truth from error. We read, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So we are commanded here to test the spirits. John is making reference to the source of a teacher and his teaching when he uses the word spirit. The Holy Spirit is the source of those who speak truth based on God's word. And the devil is the source of those who teach error. Behind false teachers is the spirit of Satan. But this is not always obvious because as we know, Paul told us, Satan appears as an angel of light. We are commanded here to not believe every spirit, but rather to test them. And this is a command for every believer in Jesus. If you know Christ as your Savior, then you are to test every teacher you listen to in order to determine if their message is from God or from Satan. We are told to test the spirits, which basically means to examine. We cannot be naive and think that men and women who claim to teach the Bible are all from God. And why should we always test the spirits? Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Satan has his messengers throughout the world in order to mislead people into error. They are in the pulpits, they are in seminaries, they are in Christian colleges, Christian organizations. They write books, they're on the TV, they're on the internet, they're on the radio. You only have to look at history to realize that many that were once sound institutions of learning are now filled with teachers that don't even believe the Bible is God's word. I don't know what even what they're training them to do in these kinds of schools. I don't know, go run a social activity. Many teachers sound good. They may be gifted and skilled in communicating, but in reality, they proclaim a false gospel. And as believers, we are the ones responsible to test in order to discern what they're saying is truth or error. I remind you what Paul said to the Galatians. If anyone comes to you, even an angel, preaching a different gospel than the one we told you, let him be accursed. So how do we test the spirits? We read, by this you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of Antichrist, of which you heard that is coming and now is already in the world. So what is this teacher proclaiming about Jesus Christ? We have to ask that. Is Christ full deity? Is he a full man? John chapter 1, Colossians 2, 9 make it clear that Jesus is God and that he became a man while still being fully God. 
Jesus is fully God, fully man. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God, and he is God the Son. This isn't just accepting this doctrine that Christ is God. Remember, we saw in James, even the demons believe that. To confess Jesus as God demands a belief that salvation is only through faith in Christ and his atoning work on the cross on behalf of sinners. This is what true teachers from God believe and teach. Does a teacher exalt Jesus as the only true God, or do they, do they explain that God became a man so that he could die as a sinless substitute for sinners? Do they call people to trust in his death as the only means of salvation and forgiveness? If so, we know the Holy Spirit is behind their teaching. Like the one I quoted earlier in my opening, we are able to see if he is from God or not. True teachers don't preach all about themselves. Who wants to hear about them anyway? They don't demand you send them money in order that you will gain favor from God and he'll bless you like he's blessed me or I'm his anointed one so you send your money to me and your life will go well. They don't preach Christ as Lord. So who is behind man's teaching that fails this biblical view of Christ? So according to verse 3, it is Satan. Every teacher who denies the deity of Christ is antichrist. They have that same spirit that is coming when the one world ruler arrives on the scene, which Revelation talks about the great tribulation period. And he will arise on the scene. He is the opposite of everything that Christ stands for. And it is the same satanic spirit that will inspire the Antichrist that is now present in this world, inspiring false teachers. So every cult that comes to your door, you converse with them and you will see that they do not believe in the deity of Christ and that salvation is by him alone. And countless teachers on Christian stations also teach error about Christ, even though they talk about the Bible. They sound impressive and sincere and are very... Um, believable. So do you listen with discernment to messages? Do you read books carefully observing what is being said about Christ and his word? Does it measure up? I hope so. Don't be fooled by persuasive speeches and personalities. Notice what John says in verse four, you are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Every true believer is of God, and in total contrast to false teachers whose source is Satan. We have spiritual life because of God. We have divine nature put in us because of his grace in our lives the moment we trust him to save us. And because of this, we have overcome them, the false teachers uh, that don't have a relationship with God. They are not of God. They are mouthpieces of Satan, whether they realize it or not. Apparently, the true believers in the church that John was writing to here had stood up to those false teachers, the Gnostics, and told them they were wrong. Remember, they left the congregation. They went out from us because they were not of us. The Holy Spirit lives within every believer, and he is greater than Satan who inspires the false messages. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, but believers have the indwelling Holy Spirit who enables us to have victory over Satan's error and false teaching. One Bible commentator put it this way, the Holy Spirit reacts within us when something does not tally with the word of God. The Spirit prompts believers to question what is said and to ask, that does not sound right. Is that what the word of God says? 
The spirit of truth helps us to recognize error and danger. End of quote. So this should be an encouragement to us. We do not need to be afraid of falling into error about our salvation in Christ. When it comes to the truths about the person and work of Christ, we need not be afraid or deceived. So do you test the spirits? When you're listening to a message on the radio or on the TV or you're reading a book, are you being discerning? Realize you have an enemy who wants to take you down a wrong path. If you truly are his child, you have the Holy Spirit who indwells you, and he is the resident truth teacher. And he enables you then to test the spirits. And how? Well, we read in verse 5, they are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So John here contrasts two speakers, those of this world who listen to false teachers and those who know God and listen to what scripture says, what the apostles have taught. God's people listen and agree with those who teach the truth from God's word, while unbelievers listen to false teachers and agree with them, as false teachers often simply feed people sinful, fleshly desires for pleasure. Isn't it interesting that whatever sin or whatever pleasure you may find yourself in. You can find a Bible teacher um, given a message on that that'll verify why you can continue in that sin. Unbelievers reject teaching based on God's word. It is so critical to recognize that true teachers teach the truth about Jesus and salvation that it is by faith alone. But false teachers proclaim error about Christ, something about his deity, something about his humanity is off, and they usually teach salvation as some form of works. Their message often appeals to audiences, as I said, sinful desires for material goods or pleasure. So, I mean, if you struggle with coveting, you struggle with materialism, then you listen to a preacher who's going to tell you, you deserve to have everything in your heart that you want to have. You, you, pursue, you pursue that, yeah, you make that your aim. That's just feeding the sin of covetousness. So I encourage you to be discerning, ladies. Don't fall into the trap of these countless false teachers who have become prominent in America. And how horrible that this is the message we are exporting around the world. Now John comes back to the familiar theme of the importance of loving one another. Man, he keeps hitting this over and over and over in this short book. Verse 7, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. We have seen throughout our study that John tells us to test ourselves to determine if we really have a relationship with Jesus Christ. And we test ourselves by seeing if we love fellow believers. That's one of the tests in this book. And why is it so important anyway? We all know there are times in our lives where we really struggle to show love to somebody. But we need to be encouraged to love difficult people even if we don't feel like it. And he's going to present the case. We should love one another because that is the nature of God to love. John tells us that God is the source of love. So love isn't just what God does, it's who he is. Love is his eternal nature. And since we become partakers in his 
divine nature with the moment we trust him for salvation, then we are to love believers because God loves believers. He has given his children the capacity to demonstrate this love by giving of ourselves to others. This removes all of the excuses why that person is impossible to love. They're so annoying. They're so rude. They're so unlovable. They're so cold. But if you have been born again into the family of God, then you have a new nature, and that nature enables you to love. You can love unlovely people that God, he always sends them across your path, right? And of course, this includes unbelievers as well, but John's focus here is on loving fellow believers, and he reminds us that God is a source of love. It is the very nature of God to love. All of his attributes work together perfectly in harmony. They never contradict each other. His love compels him then to be holy and to be just. We as his children are compelled to love others because we are partakers in his divine nature. This is not about loving people who love you back or are easy to love. God's love is never limited. He loves the undeserving like you and me, and he treats them with kindness, and so we must do the same. If there is no love for other believers, then John says, the one who does not love does not know God. And we love believers because God displayed love by his sacrificial death of Jesus. By this, the love of God was manifested in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. So we see the love of God demonstrated to us by Jesus becoming a man so that he could die for our sins so that the wrath of God was settled and satisfied by this amazing atoning work of Jesus on the cross. Verse 10 goes on to tell us, in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. In other words, God's wrath was completely satisfied by Christ's death on the cross. Because God's holy, he can't just look the other way with sin. It has to be dealt with. And so it was dealt with. John MacArthur in his uh, commentary said this, the real good news is that God himself, through the sacrifice of his son, paid the price of sin. He took the initiative. He was not responding to anything in sinners that made them worthy of grace. On the contrary, his love was altogether undeserved by human, sinful humanity. The sinners for whom Christ died were worthy of nothing but his wrath, end of quote. It is God, whose very nature is love, that took the initiative by sending Jesus to die as a guilt offering in the place of sinners like you and me. Therefore, we ought to love one another. We have the example of Jesus' selfless love for the undeserving, and the same kind of selfless love is to be lived out with fellow believers. And I remind you, if you isolate yourself, you can't really be doing this adequately. We need to be connected to believers in order to show love to them. This is the only way to be set free from a life of total self-centeredness, which is our natural bent. We are to love others as we have been shown love by Christ. And just as you understand yourself to be totally undeserving of this love, so we must love others even if we don't think they deserve it. Our example is the love of God. He modeled it for us so that we would love others the way he loves us. So when you're struggling with treating a very challenging person who is ungrateful or rude or thoughtless um, with love, remember, God loves you, 
And you're all those things and way more. (laughs) When we love God, God's love is seen in our love. This is quite an amazing statement here. John says, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, why, is, why does this verse begin with telling us no one has seen God at any time? What is this doing here in the middle of this chapter? Well, John means that no human being has ever seen God in all of his full, fullness and his total essential nature and being. His essence cannot be seen. Of course, there are many Old Testament appearances of God known as theophanies. The second person of the Trinity appeared numerous times to people in this world and then ultimately came as Jesus of Nazareth, but they were not revelations of God in all of the fullness of his glory and his essence. No one has ever seen God in all of that fullness, but there were glimpses of him in human form without seeing all of his glory. One author put it this way, although no one has ever seen the invisible God in all his glory, yet when we love one another, people see his love because we put his love on display. Can you wrap your head around that? When we love other believers, people then are able to see what God's love looks looks like. You know, they can see in nature his power, his majesty, his orderliness, but they don't see his love. But they can see his love when believers love one another. This confirms that God abides in us and the Holy Spirit has shed his love in our hearts. And when we love one another, it confirms that love is perfected in us. And that word perfected has the idea of bringing to a goal or to be complete. So when we love fellow believers, that is the goal of God's love, to sacrificially love believers in Christ. And I think we fail to realize how critically important this really is. Our world knows nothing of the love of God, but they can see him and his love by the way we treat each other. So loving other believers really has nothing to do with how we might feel about them personally. We love them for the sake of the gospel that we share with them. People can catch a picture of God as they see his love being acted out. If you care anything for lost people, who don't know Christ, then you desire to be the best testimony possible to them. You have the opportunity then to display the love of God by how you show love to others. How incredibly awful it is when churches split, when believers fight, when they take one another to court, when they don't resolve conflicts, when they're abusive to other believers. How many people have walked away from the Christian world, the Christian faith? How many young people who saw their parents mistreated have walked away and want nothing to do with it? Is the invisible God put on display for others in your life as they see how you love people? Do you follow the example of Jesus of giving yourself to others? We see the importance from these verses of our words and our actions that they demonstrate the love of God to a lost and dying world. That brings us to assurance of salvation from the Holy Spirit. Verse 13, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. 
And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Well, we've just seen that God lives in believers and that his love is perfected in us. Now he develops this truth further by saying, we know we are truly saved because we have the Holy Spirit living within us. The Holy Spirit, at the moment we put our confidence and faith in Jesus to save us from our sin, he comes and indwells us. And at that moment of salvation, the gift of the Holy Spirit lives within every believer, regardless of spiritual maturity, um, every believer has the Holy Spirit indwelling them. This is clearly taught, Romans 8, 9, and 15, Ephesians 1, 13, 1 Corinthians 2, 12. So if you're listening to a message that says you have to have <clears throat> a gift from the Holy Spirit to get the Holy Spirit, and that is how you have the Holy Spirit, you know you're listening to error. Because Scripture says the Holy Spirit dwells in everyone when the moment of their salvation now, those who have the indwelling Holy Spirit confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And John tells us that the only way a person can be saved and experience the Holy Spirit's indwelling is by believing the gospel message that Christ died for sinners. John makes it clear that he and his fellow apostles have testified about Christ, but a person must believe that gospel message. And as we've discussed before, it's not intellectual acceptance of the facts. It's a surrender of your life to his lordship. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides him in him and he in God. Those who, ha who believe in their hearts the gospel message prove that reality by verbally confessing Christ to others. One person put it this way, mere confession of our lips is not enough. True confession of Jesus Christ means being willing to stand up for him at all different times, in all different places, before all different kinds of people, and under all different circumstances. True confession means trusting Christ and living under his authority and lordship. It makes us willing to suffer persecution for Christ's sake, a foreign concept to many out there teaching right now. And if that is true of you, then be encouraged, says John, then you know that God dwells in you and you in God. We learned in chapter 2 that all true believers know and believe the truth about Jesus. And here in this chapter, we see they embrace this truth and confess Christ as the Son of God because of the work of the Holy Spirit in them. But John brings out another point. All true believers abide in the love of God. We have come to know him and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God and God abides in him. So the evidence that we believe the gospel is that we now love others in our lives. And that's because God, who is love, abides in us. Love is our way of life. It is our direction. It is our norm. It is only because of the work of the Holy Spirit in your life that you are able to love God, that you care anything about his word or other people. It is only the Spirit who can take our cold, sin-hardened hearts and transform us to be able to love God love his truth, and love his people. And the blessings of abiding of God, we see, by this love is perfected with us. What is John talking about when he says by this? It seems like he's talking about what he just said in the verse before. God's love is perfected in you. It doesn't mean your love is always perfect, but it does mean that God's love has reached its intended goal in your life, to love other believers in Christ. Believers have been transformed into something, to someone through whom Christ loves other people. The evidence of God's work and grace 
It isn't natural for us to love other people, but God changes our hearts, gives us a new heart, gives us the indwelling Holy Spirit so that we become a channel to love other people. And believers have confidence for that day of judgment so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment because he, as he is, so also are we in this world. So our salvation not only makes it possible to love others, but it also enables us to not have to fear a future judgment. Revelation chapter 20 speaks about a very horrific day known as the great white throne judgment where every unbeliever who has ever lived will stand before God and they will give an account for everything they have done and they will stand there before Jesus Christ who will sentence them to the eternal lake of fire forever. This will be a time of absolute terror as every person's deeds are exposed and no one will have a valid excuse. Every knee will bow. By contrast, believers have confidence that no fear of no fear or terror to stand before Christ. We know our lives have been transformed by the Lord. Therefore, we need not fear the coming judgment. Christ has already judged, been judged in our place, and the proof that we have trusted him is that he has changed our lives. We have been saved from the judgment to come, and that transformation in our, life, in our life is what makes it a reality. He is transforming our character to be more and more like Jesus. And because as he is, so also are we in this world. Speaks about our lives being transformed. Because we love other believers as Christ loves his own, this is the evidence of our salvation. And we need not ever fear the day of judgment. And there's no fear in love. Perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. So John tells us that when we see a believer loving other believers, this gives assurance of salvation. And it removes any fear of God's judgment in the future. Satan may tempt us to fear judgment, but John makes it clear that when this fear arises in our mind, it is completely invalid if we know Christ. And the evidence of salvation that we see in our lives is that we love believers. And again, this sort of test, this, I mean, John keeps driving this point home again and again and again. So clearly it's important. The point of this letter is to bring assurance to every believer. I close with this quote from D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. An ultimate test of our profession of the Christian faith is whether we have within us this quality of love. You cannot read the New Testament without seeing this. It is not our good works or our merit that matters. It is not our zeal. Even as preachers of the gospel, we may do that with a carnal zeal and with a hard heart. No, the ultimate test is love. It is not something theoretical, nor is it something to which we subscribe on a piece of paper. The ultimate test of our conformity to the Lord Jesus Christ is that we manifest this love in our lives and in the whole of our conduct. So ladies, you realize for some people, you are the only <laughs> light of the truth of the gospel and your behavior and your love is the only glimpse of Jesus they're going to have. How do you love others? You are a beacon in a dark world dominated, so dominated by hatred and bitterness. We are able to love others because he first loved us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and you keep driving home this truth, Lord, so I know that it is critical. I pray for each one of us here that we would be honest with ourselves and give ourselves these tests that you keep hammering home 
And when we see that you have transformed our life by our embracing the gospel, Lord, let us live with hope. Let us live as light in a dark world. And I pray for each lady here, Lord, to discern truth from error. error. Lord, Satan is so cunning and so deceptive, and he weaves error in with truth in order to dupe Christians to get off track. Lord, I pray that we would be discerning and test the spirits as you have commanded us to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, ladies.